This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with David Montgomery. He is a geomorphologist at the University of Washington. I spoke with him on July 3rd, 2013, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of KUOW in Seattle. Download the MP3 of that produced show with David Montgomery at onbeing.org. Hello? Hi, it's Krista Tippett. Hello, how are you doing? This is Dave. Hi. Hi, Dave. Um, are we settled? Are we... Let's see. Okay. Um, well, thank you, for, thank you for doing this. Oh, sure. No problem. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I'm, I've had a lot of fun in your, in your ideas and your books the last couple of days. Um, do you have any questions of me before we start? Um... Let's see. I mean, none that are like crucial and burning questions, but, um, you know, if you wanted to, uh, uh, we're going for what, hour and a half? Yeah, we'll go, we'll go somewhere between an hour and an hour and hour and a half. It's just, we get okay, to, well, we, we got, get to have a real conversation. That sounds great. <laughs> I've, uh, you know, I've, I've blocked the time out. Um, I have nothing else to do for the next hour and a half and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Okay. Um, All right. All right. That's good. Um, uh, <laughs> then I'll get back to working on my new book. <laughs> What's your next book? Well, I'll ask you this. I'll ask, I don't want to talk about anything substance, substantial right now. Yes. Um, Fair Chris, enough. Chris, do you need let, – let me just ask you something mundane while we get levels. Um, what did you have for breakfast? I had yogurt. Yogurt and granola. Sounds I good. Had yogurt, granola, and a lot, a lot of tea to get me running. <laughs> I'm also a morning tea drinker. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I was sort of sacrilegious for Seattle, but I, I went off coffee years ago. Yeah. And um, I sort of quit it and beer at the same time. And I think it was a fine lifestyle choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, you sound like you're doing really well on this. So, oh, I see Chris is yeah. coming towards me, so we may have some. It's all good. We're really is it all good? Okay. All right. Okay. Well, I think I hear myself fine, and I hear you fine. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Is levels okay with you? Yeah, I think so. Just getting the last pieces in place here. Okay. Um, I think you've done ISDN interviews before, haven't you? This. Uh, yes. This uh, Vulcan mind meld experience. I'm in your brain. You're in mine. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, but at least I don't have to sing to on these. Right? It's, <laughs> so, so I have like these microphones in front of me. I'm used to seeing in recording studios. So. Yeah, well, I may, I may ask <laughs> um, you to sing as we get to know each other better in about an hour from now. Okay. Well, you know, I'd probably basically just say, "I'll just send you my band's new CD, <laughs> okay. and and you can do what you want with it." All right. <laughs> well, I think we're going to want that in any case. Um, are we ready? <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, um, I, I'm not sure I've heard this. Where, where, where did you grow up? Where are you from? Well, I grew up in California, mm-hmm. uh, Palo Alto. Okay. Um, and I, I believe that uh, these these biblical, these are some of these religious stories that you've ended up pondering um, in the context of geology um, were, were part of your childhood. There was a, there was, you knew about Noah and the flood. Oh yeah, no. I, I grew up in a Presbyterian household mm-hmm. and went to, went to Sunday school. Uh, was exposed to biblical stories. Uh, you know, the story of Noah's flood was right in there among all the other ones that uh, I absorbed as a child. Mm-hmm. And uh, that one, you know, becoming a geologist later in life, that one obviously stuck with me in a special way. Yeah. 
Um, and where do you where do you trace the roots of your interest in geology and ecology? Where did that come in for you? Well, you know, it's uh, as a as a kid we, we traveled a lot. Um, my parents were very into traveling. I got to see. Uh, you know, interesting parts of the world, the American Southwest, where my mother was from, and the geology there is just like laid out for you to see. Mm. And so I was interested in maps and topography uh, very early as a child. And then in high school, I had a, a, a high school biology teacher who really turned me on to, to science, essentially. Mm. Uh, and my interest in ecology grew out of that. I then got to college and got really interested in geology and just sort of kept running with it. Mm. And so, and now your field is, you are a geomorphologist, um, which is a very intriguing word. So, I mean, t- tell me what that means, what, what you do, what you study. Well, you know, a geomorphologist is somebody who studies the, the evolution of topography. So a century mm-hmm. ago, I might have been called a physiographer or a topographer. Uh. And so I study how mountains form, how rivers work, how erosion shapes, you know, uh, agricultural fields, sort of anything that's shaping the surface of the earth is fair game for a geomorphologist, which makes it a very synthetic discipline. You have to know physics, chemistry, and biology and put it all together with geology to to try and interpret the way the world has changed, both in the past and at present, and to forecast what's coming in the future. Hmm. It's interesting, um, when you were writing about your work in the Sangpo Gorge, um, you used phrases like scientific sleuthing and I like this collecting pieces of a landscape scale puzzle <laughs> which makes it sound really really fun well you know it is <laughs> um, you know getting I, I, there's still like a, you know at least once a year where I'm out in the field somewhere trying to put together the pieces of a puzzle of a landscape that I either know well but don't quite get or have never seen before that I want that I'm just sort of stop and think, wow, I can actually do this for a living. This is wonderful. Mm, mm. Um, in part because of that, that essence of an intellectual challenge and a puzzle of trying to figure out how the world works. One of the things that is really characteristic of geology as a science is we never have all the data we want. You know, we, we put together stories from fragments and to try and put the best story together with as much information as we can gather on things that the data is necessarily fragmentary and not not up to the task. Hmm. So we have to become storytellers, but trying to stick to being faithful to the data. Right. I mean, you, you, you wrote somewhere, I've learned to see what the land used to look like, what it might look like in the future. You talk about, you know, reading the rocks. And I, I thought it might be interesting, you know, you, you describe in one of your books being in the Grand Canyon and and reading the rocks there. And I wondered if you would just, you know, indulge us in just, um, you know, so, 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 I mean, I know you're not there, but, but you've clearly spent a lot of time, you did spend that time and you've written about it. You know, when you are in the Grand Canyon, for example, or if you want to give me an example that maybe is more recent, you know, what are you seeing? What are, what are you, what are you reading from? Well, you know, the, the the example I might start with is the one on the Tsangpo Gorge that you mentioned yeah. in terms of, you know, I went to eastern Tibet about a decade ago on a field project where they needed somebody who worked on rivers. And so they asked me if I would come and I was sort of tagging along as not the guy sort of running the show, but trying to do the stuff that they needed somebody to kind of handle that wasn't the main thrust. But when we got there and drove over the pass from Lhasa down towards the gorge of the Tsangpo River, sort of the target of our of uh, 
of the field study, mm-hmm. I started noticing these weird flat-topped bits of topography, these terraces that rose above the valley bottom at different places down through the valley system. And those terraces were a giveaway that water had filled that valley at some point because they were composed where you could look in the road cuts and see what was actually in the land, what was essentially the nature of the subsurface. And it was lake sediments. It was thin mm-hmm. bands of silt and clay sitting on top of river gravel. So, you know, there had been a river valley. It had filled with lake sediments, which meant there was a lake there. But when you started to look at the distribution of these terraces and look downstream and ask the question, why was there a lake? This is sort of the the, starting to put the pieces of the puzzle in place and framing what is the puzzle. There was no dam to hold it in until you went way down to the very head of the gorge and there was an eroded, uh, truncated glacial moraine, a a deposit that a glacier had bulldozed up in front of it and had dammed the river valley, backing up the lake uh, as the river filled in behind the dam. But a glacial moraine doesn't make for a very good dam because it's made greatly out of ice uh, or it's sort of bolstered by ice. And when that ice dam failed, it would generate a tremendous flood. So sort of went to this area I'd never seen before, started putting the pieces together and came away sort of going, oh, my, there had been a really huge lake that failed catastrophically to generate a big flood. That's the kind of uh, geological sleuthing mm-hmm. that to a geomorphologist is just incredibly fun because you, you go there and you figure out something that uh, – you didn't expect you'd see there, uh, and but the pieces tell you that it was there. And figuring out what the the earth is, what the land and the rocks are trying to tell you, what they record in terms of its own history, is the puzzle and is the challenge and is the sort of the thrill of the the thrill of the chase for a geologist. Right. So so yes so so it, again it, it comes kind of comes back to, to this idea that um, this idea that geologists are storytellers naturally. Um, and then this really interesting convergence that you started to pay attention to at some point, that that stories, human stories, have also given rise to and informed uh, geology across the centuries. Um, and in fact, this idea that the biblical flood story was was a starting point for the field of geology. Yeah, it really was. When you when you look back into the the sort of relationship between science and religion, one doesn't really often hear these days the story of how they cross pollinated and informed each other in yeah. ways that led to sort of intellectual growth in in both theology and in science. But when you look back to the the sort of the the what we view today as the founding fathers of geology, that folks in the seventeenth and eighteenth century who started to put the pieces of the global puzzle together. Uh, they were pretty – many of them were motivated by trying to explain the story of Noah's flood because that was yeah. essentially the theory of the times. And a lot of them were the clergy too, theory. weren't they? Clergy or theologians. Yeah, it, it, most of them actually were. <laughs> um, you can kind of think back in the 17th century, who would have had the luxury of sort of the, the time and the ability to ponder questions like how the world was put together? Hmm. Um and the clergy were folks that, you know, is it the wealthier the clergy were the people who would, would clearly have the time, and the wealthy were off, you know, starting wars and doing things um, that were – and so many of the people who were sort of deep thinkers, if you will, trying to – in the early age of the Enlightenment, trying to wrestle with, okay, how did God create the world? And what might we see out there that we could use to test the ways that one might think that um, it was done? 
we're for dominantly clergy. The, the guy who mm-hmm. uh, is now viewed as the grandfather of geology, Nicholas Steno, invented the, what's still the founding principles of geology um, in an effort to try and explain the evolution of the Tuscan landscape. And the third step in what he came up with in his interpretation was Noah's flood. Um, he worked it into the way he interpreted what he was seeing in the rocks because that was the theory he was working from. And he was not alone. It, that was essentially very typical. And I think that, um, you know, what was interesting to me, I, first of all, I just, I think that's so, um, you know, what, what, what's, what's very clear when you speak about this, and I just never thought about it this way, is that, that this, this inquiry about geology, about how landscapes formed, um, you know, as you said, it's, it's, it's also pursuing this question of how the world was put together, how it came together. Um, so this is also, it, this, this is also about origins, you know, this is this is one of these origin stories, but we don't necessarily think about landscape and geology in those terms when we talk about that in our culture. Yeah, I, th- I think that's very true. And you can think of it in terms of how we think of our place in the world or the universe is informed by how we think it got to be the way it is. Yeah, right. And if you look at, you know, most of the sort of the stories, you know, most cultures have a creation story. There's everybody... In every culture, is probably wanting to know why are what, why are we here? What are we doing here? How did we get here? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and then the biggest question of all: what might happen next? <laughs> um, yeah. But the and so geology really is essentially um, that and cosmology. You put those together, and they're essentially the scientific creation story. Sort of how right. did it really work? What right. what can we tell from the nature of the universe around us? that would inform us in our thinking about how we got to the place we are now. Mm-hmm. And that really is, I think, central to our sort of view of ourselves as a species, um, our place in the universe, as well as sort of, you know, your personal relationship to the universe. What what am I doing here? Yeah. And I think that it, it seems to me that you were somewhat surprised um, as you got into this question of the, the flood story and um, and geology t- to see the sense that was actually there, that, that in fact, you know, somewhere you wrote, Noah's flood was the plate tectonics of its day. And and what, what I came to understand in how you wrote about that is, um, as you say, those people hundreds of years ago whose starting point was just looking at what they could see in the landscape. I mean, you there were marine fossils, uh, shells of sea creatures on tops of mountains. And one way to explain that, you know, quite an inexplicable uh, occurrence would be that at one point that was all covered with water. Yeah. I mean, if you had, um, if all you had before you was sort of the evidence of, you know, a seashell in the rock at the highest point in the topography you knew of, you know, seashells on mountaintops. Yeah. And you didn't have any ideas about how mountains might rise or or sort of how the world worked, you sort of thought, well, the land's the way it's always been because, you know, it hasn't changed that much in my life. And so you're seeing this evidence in the rocks. Um, you would think that the, that mountain would, had been covered by water at some point. It would be the logical conclusion to draw. Um, we now know today that in most of those cases, the rocks have been shoved up from beneath the seafloor to now be above sea level. But, you know, that's sort of a you know, a couple thousand years ago, that was sort of an outrageous proposition right, right, um, right. for which there was no theory and no evidence and no tradition. Um, and if you look back at some of the, I mean, the logic of seashells on a mountaintop uh, as support for the veracity of the biblical story of Noah's flood, 
traces way back into antiquity and, and back to even the uh, St. Augustine in what, the 3rd, 4th century AD, who, who wrote extensively about the relationship between rationality and faith, or faith and reason, and um, how the way the world works and the way we can understand that through rational inquiry was something we should not be so easily, not dismissed fairly readily by uh, any invocation of faith. And one of the examples he used was the idea that Noah's flood was a global flood because you could see the seashells in the rocks, and where else would they have come from? Right, right. I I got a sense that you quite enjoyed um, getting into these church fathers and, and theologians. I mean, you, you get into Origen and Aquinas and Augustine. Were those uh, thinkers who you had studied previously? They were not, which is probably one of the reasons I really did enjoy getting into them. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was trained as a scientist, trained as a geologist, so um, I wasn't trained as a theologian. I didn't. I don't think there even was a history of science class where I did my when and where I did my my undergraduate training. Mm-hmm. But getting into that, I really did enjoy it because what you see sort of today often in the media are portrayals of the sort of the war between science and religion. And if you go back and start reading some of the early church fathers, you start to sort of see well, it was actually much more interesting arguments about the nature of faith and reason and um, uh, how it would be very difficult to interpret evidence you could see in the world what, through the application of what I think was a keenest called, you know, God's greatest gift, reason, what we would now call right. sort of applied science. Yeah. Um, you know, things you could learn from that were, were told how the world worked. And so if you believed in a creator that made the world, that was how he or she did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you, what we, there shouldn't be ten, uh, conflict between faith and reason because the application of reason helped us understand the way the world was put together. And that kind of thinking to me was, you know, not entirely new. I mean, I had, had been exposed to some of that. But delving into it and thinking about it and, and understanding the sort of the, the long and deep history in Christian thought about validating what we would now call science mm-hmm. was a bit, you know, pardon the phrase, a bit of a revelation to me. In terms, um, and I did, I did enjoy getting into it. Yeah, and that intellectual rigor with which they wrestled with these things too, right? Yes, exactly. It was, yeah. um, I mean, it, it was, and it was sort of central to how they viewed faith and reason was through the balancing intention and and the cross pollination between them. Right. Right. I, I would like to hear a little bit more about Steno. It's Neil Stenson, right? 17th century. Um, yeah. It seemed to me that, you know, in a way you might see him, I mean, we know about Copernicus maybe, and he seemed to me this is like the ge- geological counterpart to, you know, Copernicus and astronomy, somebody who, somebody who actually in his person reconciled a scientific vocation and spiritual vocation while also making pretty radical observations that unsettled a lot of things. Uh, he was very much that guy, <laughs> um, very much, and he's still revered as the you know the, the guy who laid down the founding principles of the science of geology. So if you if you crack open an introductory geolo- geology textbook, or he's there, you'll find the, he's there. Uh-huh. He's there as the guy who basically laid down the founding principles, which um, are actually pretty simple. Um, he basically argued that if you have a pile of rocks that were laid down in water, that 
they're laid down horizontally because that's what happens if things happen under the influence of gravity. You, know, you take a bunch of take a, a fistful of dirt with sand and mud and clay and drop it in a glass of water, and the stuff settles out in layers that are horizontal. That was his first principle, and his second principle was that well, the stuff that settled out first is on the bottom of the pile. You know, these are two rules that he proposed quite intentionally to be so transparent and unarguable that if you then applied reason. If you applied those rules to the interpretation of rocks, nobody could argue with your interpretation because they were a priori reasonable. Okay. Um, and so, and those are still the principle, you know, fundamental principles to the science of the geology. Oldest rocks are on the bottom, and layered sedimentary rocks, rocks laid down in water, they're they're put down horizontally. They don't, they're not deposited standing vertically. So when you find them standing vertically, they've been tipped over. Okay. <laughs> those those really simple ideas still underpin the science. But what did he? Why did he propose those ideas? Well, he actually got into it by, um, essentially, by chance. The way like many scientific advances actually happen. Um, some fishermen uh, uh, pulled up a great white shark, I think, at the mouth of the Arno River. And Steno at the time was working for Ferdinand II, I think it was, the Grand Duke of Tuscany in, in Florence, I believe. Um, and they, he was basically the best dissectionist that was in the Grand Duke's stable of, of scientists who he supported or, or natural philosophers in those days. Um, and so Steno basically got the job of dissecting this the, this monstrous head of a great white shark, or I should say the honor of dissecting it, mm. because in those in the 17th century, uh, dissections, public dissections were kind of the equivalent of like today's IMAX theaters, uh, you know, with, the okay. th- yeah. three, with 3D. I mean, this was big, big public entertainment. Okay. Um, and, 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 and so they were, you know, what could be better than the head of a giant sea monster that had been dragged up? Um, so, so he's dissecting this thing in front of a public audience, and he notices that the teeth of this great white shark are dead ringers for these mysterious triangular objects called tongue stones that have been known since antiquity in Europe. And you know, it had been thought to have all kinds of magical properties, of, um, and people used them for cures and, and other things. Uh, mm. But uh, or they, they had no, but people didn't have any idea how they formed. They were found eroding out of rocks, but the people thought maybe they were petrified lightning strikes or, or, mm. or weird minerals. Steno sees that, whoa, actually these things are shark teeth. Oh. Um, you know, carbon copies. He said they're as identical to one another as eggs are to one another. You know, mm-hmm. They were biologic in origin, right. and they were the teeth of sharks. And so he started to ponder the question, how did the teeth of sharks get into rocks? Mm. Um, and this led him, and if you go to the island of Malta, for example, there's whole layers of rock that are like all these, they're tongue stones. They're just piles of great white shark teeth. <laughs> Um, or old, older shark teeth. So he started to then develop, lay his, develop his principles and started getting really interested in geology to try and figure out this question of how did shark teeth get into rocks. And in applying those principles to the lands, and interpreting all the layers of rocks and the, the deformed layers he saw around his home, um, he basically came up with the idea that the world was... Uh, had been modified after the original creation in six different stages, uh, One, the third of which, if I believe, was Noah's Flood, when okay. the hollowed-out crust of the earth collapsed into an inner inner sea and basically triggered the Great Flood. Hmm. So he, here he is laying down the still-current founding principles of the science of geology, and the first thing he does is he turns around and, and applies them to the interpretation of the story of Noah's Flood. Right, right. And then... 
Another thing I learned from you that's so fascinating is that up to the early 19th century, there was still this the, the, the prevailing interpretation, I mean, correct me, the nuance of what I'm saying, was that essentially landscape essentially could be explained by catastrophes, right? Even if people weren't necessarily talking about Noah's flood, they were assuming that the ch- that change in landscapes or the landscape, you know, that, that this had come about suddenly and dramatically, that, that catastrophic forces had fundamentally reshaped the landscape. And then in that century, there was a huge opening to a different way of seeing this. Is that right? Yeah, in the that's that's about right. In the in the early um uh in the early 1800s in the early 19th century, the prevailing idea was that the world had been that its geology could be explained by a whole series of catastrophes. So in in Steno's day in the 17th century, a century and a half earlier, mm-hmm. it had been thought there's one big catastrophe, and that's but the, the more people flood. started and, and that's that was, the global flood, because yeah, okay. that's the one that was in the book, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that was the theory everybody started with. Okay. Um, and the problem was is that once the geologists started applying Steno's principles to understanding the distribution of rocks around Europe, they discovered um, essentially two things. One, there were far too many individual layers of, of rock that had settled out, where you could distinguish, say, silt from sand, which takes some time for all the silt and the clay to settle. There were far, you know, there are thousands and thousands of layers, far more layers than could actually have settled out in a single flood. Let, you know. And the other thing was that there were um, that the rock record was just too complex. There were there was a whole series of events, different ages of geological deposits that were separated by big breaks in the rock record that indicated something big happened, something okay. changed, and they, those were interpreted as big disasters, things like the biblical story of Noah's flood. But the problem at the early uh, 19th century and the early 1800s was that there were too many big floods or catastrophes in the rock record. And so Noah's flood couldn't be the only one. There must have been a whole series. And that brought up the the theological problem of, well, what were all these other events? Um, And the capstone on it all was the recognition of the problem of extinctions, the idea that as you looked in each of these different packets of rocks, rocks from different ages that were being bandied about in the early um, 19th century, each layer, each set of layers had a different fauna. Mm-hmm. So the animals, the plants and animals in sort of that were on the world at one time all got wiped out apparently and replaced by the ones in the next world and so on up through I think six different um, – by the by, the 1840s or so, about six different layers, uh, or six different epochs of geologic time. You know, one thing that's so interesting about reading you when you're reading rocks, when you're writing about that, is it just you re- seeing these, and I think you always talk about entombed fossils, and sort mm. of seeing all these creatures, and then epoch by epoch, as you can see them in that compressed way. Yeah, you can. The fossil record is essentially a, a field guide to life we'll never see in the flesh. It's mm. sort of the way things mm. used to be, right. um, which makes it really fascinating. But yeah. the problem of extinctions was a huge theological problem because Noah's job had been to save two of everything. Right. And so right, right. if you sort of take the idea that, that the world's rocks and rock record, the sort of the, the idea that's still thrown around in modern creationism, if it was all due to Noah's flood, then why are all these extinct animals entombed in the deposits? Mm-hmm. It, it's a huge problem because the Bible never mentions that anywhere. Yeah. Um, in fact, it mentions explicitly the opposite, that everything you should find in the, um, 
in the rocks, if that was the correct interpretation, yeah. ought to be animals that we know today. Right. And and then how did science um, start to change? How did science move away even from that w- way of explaining landscape by catastrophe? Well, there's sort of a two parallel developments. One is that... Um, a guy named Louis Agassiz discovered uh, the evidence for the, what we now call colloquially the ice ages or the, the period, glacial periods where great walls of ice overran a lot of northern Europe, North America, parts of South America. Um, his recognition of most of the kinds of surface deposits that in the early, 18th, early 19th century were still interpreted as the evidence of Noah's flood, the most recent of all those geologic catastrophes, um, once Agassiz basically demonstrated that those were due to glaciation and not a flood, then the whole idea of a global flood had been pretty well put to bed in the geological community. And the idea of big catastrophes kind of got tamped down right along with it. And mm-hmm. so catastrophism, the idea that we could explain the rock record and topography by a series of grand catastrophes, really fell out of favor in the late 19th century. Um, and what replaced it was the idea of uniformitarianism, which is the idea that things have – the world has been shaped by processes we can measure and see and observe today, but integrated over very long periods of time. That little changes really do add up to explain the whole picture. And it wasn't catastrophes. It was sort of gradual, everyday accumulation of small change. Right. And that was an intellectual shift of, you know, of, of huge proportions in geology so that by the end of the 19th century, sort of the dawn of the 20th century, really, the idea of big catastrophes and big floods was just completely out of geologic favor and style. Um, so and they the, really the wonderful... moved away from the stories and excised that story. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, you know, geologists were done with mm-hmm. Noah's flood and okay. other big catastrophes. They'd mm-hmm. sort of, the view in the late 19th century as well, you know, they, Science won that battle and put that myth and fairy tale to bed finally and forever. Right. Um, Did they start to have then a sense of um, another so intriguing phrase that used a lot of geologic time, deep time, that 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 if they were if they were understanding that that it wasn't these sudden dramatic changes that happened, but slow change that happened in kind of unimaginable spans of time for for human beings uh, settled into a lifetime. Yeah, it was that discovery of the reality of geologic time, that the world is a lot older than the traditional view of you know, four to 6,000 years um, that had been popular up till about the early, early 19th century. It was that discovery of the reality of geologic time, of deep time, that opened the door for human t- uniformitarianism. Because mm-hmm. if you had... Mm-hmm. If you had billions of years, you know, originally it was thought tens or hundreds of millions, and now we know billions of years for processes to work, you know, even, you know, small, small, small changes, if they're always in the same direction, can add up to big effects over that kind of a period of time. So in that way, like a river could cut its own valley, whereas in the early uh, 19th century, the thinking was, well, Noah's flood cut all the valleys because, you know, the valleys can be big and deep and the rivers in them are kind of small and they don't move much sediment day to day. So how could it possibly have cut the valley? Well, there's sort of two possible answers. One, you had some really big events that carved out the valley in the past, or you had a lot of time for that river to chew on the rock at the bottom of the valley. Um, right. And so by the early 20th century, there was enough 
of a view of geologic time that that gradual slow change idea really is what ruled the day. But, you know, something that I was really stunned to learn a few years ago when I interviewed um, Xavier Le Pichon. Do you know him? One of the fathers of plate tectonics, one of the people who discovered that back in the 60s. 70s, I, right? I know of him, but yeah. I, I've never met him. <laughs> well, just just the, but it was new to me that 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 realization that plate text tectonics was was something that wasn't discovered until, you know, the latter half of the 20th century. And I, I was interested when you describe reading a book written in 1961 called The Genesis Flood. Which is uh, by John Whitcomb and Henry Morris, which which is in the canon of kind of creation science, and you expect it again to be uh, disturbed by the book, and and I'm, I'm sure you didn't agree with a lot of, but but you also understood that they were offering a pretty insightful critique of 1950s geology, of 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 some 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 gaps that were still there. Um, even though science had made this abrupt change to an idea of, of a longer view of time. Yes, re- reading that book, reading the Genesis Flood, was it was a real eye-opener to me in terms of understanding how modern creationism essentially arose. Because if you look at the sort of uh, the theology of the early 20th century, uh, the idea of creation, creationism was pretty well put to bed in both scientific and theological worlds. Um, until that book came out, it really revived what we now today know today as modern creationism. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying, the thing I found really surprising about it is that these guys, in arguing that the world was just a few thousand years old and that all the world's geology had been shaped by Noah's flood, you know, forget Steno and all the others that followed him and the work that had been done, they knew the real answer. It was Noah's flood. Um, they actually, in, in crafting their argument, they made very insightful critiques of 1950s geology. I mean, they they had done their homework. And frankly, when I picked up their book, I hadn't expected this. Mm-hmm. Um, now, they were still catastrophically wrong in their interpretation of geology, but their critique of 1950s geology was actually pretty spot on. They asked questions like, well, why are there mountains? You know, what's the mechanism to actually build a mountain? How do you get the the uh, fossils of tropical plants up at the poles? Right, where they were still uh, that it still wasn't answered, was it? How can which, you have seashells no, on top of it, Mount Everest? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the, yeah. they went back to some of these, these classic questions that people mm-hmm. have been wrestling with for a long time, and said, "Look, geologists, you can't answer these now." Mm-hmm. And and the reality was in the 1950s, the ideas of of, of you know of a cooling Earth or the way that sort of. Uh, um, the way you would t- get rocks from the seafloor and put them on continents, the theories of the day had just fallen. They had been shown not to work, and there wasn't anything new to replace it. Mm-hmm. So the, the science of geology was kind of at a, a natural place for change, and these guys stepped in, Wickham and Morris, and basically said, well, you know, geologists, you don't know what's going on. Here's the real answer. It's in the Bible. Here's what it says, and that's the way it worked, okay? Um and that's essentially the point they made, mm-hmm. um, that it was, you know, you would read, you would go out and then look in the rock record for, for things that supported their view. What they missed, completely missed, was the whole plate tectonics revolution. And why they miss it? Well, it was happening at the same time that they were writing. Right. But plate tectonics was this revolution that no one person thought of. It, it came out of the development of three different technologies and a lot of different people putting it together. It took, you know, a decade or two for this for the geologic community to actually embrace it um, and to buy into the idea. And it was one of those ideas that once all the pieces were in place, 
it started to explain things that the guys who thought it up hadn't even thought were questions to ask. Huh, and that's the huh. hallmark of a really good theory. Huh. You know, when when you propose something and it provides que- answers to questions that the guys who developed or gals who developed it hadn't even thought to ask, right. that's a good sign for the robustness of a theory. And plate tectonics is a classic example of that. And it, it literally came out of the recognition of um, well, it came out of technological developments in the Second World War, the development of sonar that gave us the sort of the first view of seafloor topography right, in the right. world. And what it revealed is that there's mountain chains out in the middle of the ocean that circle the world like the stitching on a baseball. And this was sort of not really known. It's like, well, why are these these great linear chains? Why does the world have stitching on it? Hmm. And then the development of magnetometers that basically allowed you to look at the, the magnetic signature of the seafloor, which is driven mostly by the hunt for submarines, because you're looking for big metal objects to right. see, you drag a magnetometer around, ah, you find it. The big problem, though, is that when we started doing that, when scientists started doing that, what they found was that the magnetic signature on the seafloor changes. It flips from positive to negative. And so if you wanted to look for a submarine, you had to know the background against which you were looking for. So they made maps of the magnetic signature of the seafloor. And what they found was that it was a barcode that you had these flips of positive to negative that sort of trailed away from these great mountain ridges, these 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 mid-ocean ridges, as we now call them, or as spreading centers, as we now understand them, mm. um, the places where the Earth's crust is rifting apart and moving sideways. Mm. And the new rock that comes in gets imprinted with a positive or a negative magnetic signature that then it tracks along with the rock as you go away. So we learned to read those barcodes. And then the third was the technological development of seismology, which was really pushed as a way to verify nuclear test bans in the early right. 1960s. I did not know you that know, there was a connection between verifying nuclear test ban treaties and this final piece of the puzzle being put into place on uh, earthquakes and, and tectonic plates. Yeah, it was it was the sort of the last piece that kind of made it all make sense because mm. up till then you have the sort of okay, so the centers of the oceans are cracking and, and spreading apart. The story from the mid ocean ridges and the and the magnetic signatures. So the 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 crust is splitting apart in the middle of the oceans. If you look at the far end, once once the sort of global networks of seism, uh, seismographs were in place. To monitor Soviet nuclear tests, yeah, um, because you could you could detect it and figure out whether it was an earthquake or a nuclear bomb because they have different signatures. Uh. So once we could actually map where in the Earth's crust earthquakes were, the seismologists offered a really big surprise, and that was at the far end of an ocean basin, sort of away from that spreading center. You had these uh, great bands of earthquakes that dove into the crust in a linear band. And it was interpreted that that was oceanic crust that's being shoved down under the continents or, or under another piece of oceanic crust. So what you had there are essentially the whole top half of a grand cycle where new crust is being formed in the middle of the ocean, being shoved sideways as more crust comes up, and then it gets stuffed back down under continents. And mm. the, the sort of revelation of plate tectonics was that that's the top half of a grand cycle of recycling Earth's crust. And it explains why mountains are where they are, why earthquakes happen where they are, why volcanoes are where they are, why different kinds of rocks are in different parts of the world. In other words, it, plate tectonics is to geology essentially what DNA is to genetics. It's, mm. it's how it works. Mm. Mm. So um, 
it's just it's such an interesting place you came out on this kind of push and pull between scientific observations and religious observations, scientific questions and religious questions, um, really much more of an interplay and a conversation than, uh, what do we say, it's science, religion, uh, divide, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's that was one of those things that actually evolved for me in writing this book is I originally started thinking I would be writing, you know, fairly straight up refutation of modern creationism, sort of, you know, look, I'm a geologist. We know the world's all, here's how it works. But the more I got into it, the more I realized that the real story really was this cross-pollination and back and forth and that the, we all know the stories of the sort of the, uh, the, the battles in the so-called war between science and religion and you know, Galileo's house arrest and, and yeah. so forth at the top of the list. But if you actually look back at the motivations of many of the people involved and at the context of their times, it was a far more interesting sort of back and forth um, and cross-pollination. And, and many of the battles that we uh, see sort of culturally be still being fought today were back then sort of a tension within individual minds, within... The clergy mm. who would go out and study the rocks and try and figure Could see out both how sides of the story. God created the world. We're asking yeah, all, they were active, both sets of they questions. They were actively asking both sides. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. They, 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 uh-huh. yeah. Mm. And, so I, and I think we've kind of lost that sense of how do you sort of constructively engage between those two very different realms of human thought, um, which you, know, you could choose to view as, as being antagonistic, as is sort of the, the cultural norm in, in many spheres today. Or you could try and think of, well, how might you reconcile them? Or even just how might you think constructively about the relationship between the two of them? Mm-hmm. Um, and oh. that, that was a real eye-opener for me in, in terms of, of how to frame and think about the book, because there was that, to me, became much more of the story than I thought it would be. Have you had conversations with um, theologians or, I don't know, religious groups since you wrote this book? Uh, yeah, I've actually have um, have done some speaking to um, religious groups and, mm-hmm. and have been asked to come in and speak at a number of churches and have met with uh, groups of, of ministers and uh, and some theologians. Mm-hmm. I've had emails from creationists challenging me to debate evolution, which I found amusing because the book's not about evolution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but and and my favorite review of the book so far actually was actually published a week before it came out on a creationist website that, as you might imagine, slammed the book. But um, they couldn't possibly have read it by you know before it was actually published. Okay. <laughs> um, um, but then there is this, um, you know, it's like as you tell this story of of the development of geology across, across the centuries. Um, and again, with this with this interplay between these two spheres of how we tell the story of where we came from, um, it's like there continue to be these surprises, right? It feels like there's a step, you know, like geology, science makes a step forward and step back, and religion makes a step forward and a step back. And then there's this kind of ultimate irony that um, very recently, I mean, in the last handful of decades— there's actually new scientific as evidence that there were cataclysmic floods in the ancient Middle East, which might look something like Noah's flood. <laughs> is that right? Yes. Yes. The, the pendulum <laughs> is swinging back. Yes. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, there's this wonderful, uh, I, I mean, in wrestling with the, the question of what might have been the geological origin of the story of Noah's flood, there's, you come up with sort of two, now you can come up with two fairly plausible explanations. Uh, one is the idea of just a really big flood in Mesopotamia. And I don't know if you've ever been to New Orleans and stood outside the convention center there and noticed the sign that's about, you know, five feet above your head that says sea level. Mm. Um, <laughs> that's a sign. You know, I, I was there at a convention before Katrina and was very disturbed to see that sign because mm. if there's one place as a geologist you don't want to be standing, it's below sea level. Okay. Um, <laughs> and so you can ask the question in terms of the relevance to Noah's flood. Well, if you look at the geography of Mesopotamia, the land between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, um, it shares some basic physical geography with New Orleans. Uh, it's on a you mm. know aggradational terrain in a big delta land that's building up from sedimentation along a big river where it meets the sea. And those kinds of rivers tend to be ones where the levees stand higher than the land all around the river. And so you basically have the 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 geography that when the rivers overtop the levees, it fills the whole valley up like a bathtub. And mm-hmm. classical Mesopotamia was like that. And so you could imagine the, the, what would happen if you had the kind of really big flood that happened back, say, in the 19th century in Baghdad was under 10 feet of water, or again in the 1950s. Mm. These kind of floods happen in that region as a natural part of the cycle of, of, of runoff and sedimentation. How would you view that in the, the you know that it's in one of the earliest civilizations when your whole world, the entire civilized world to your eyes as an early Mesopotamian was that valley, and right. that valley filled with water, right? You know enough that you had to get into a boat or drowned. You know that's the elements of the story of Noah's flood, and you can trace the biblical story back into Babylonian and then Akkadian and Sumerian, right back to the earliest writing that we have, sort of indentations on baked clay tablets. So the story of Noah's flood, the sort of literary sleuthing, shows it predates the Bible by a lot. And you can trace Mm. it back to an area that was naturally prone to really big floods that would have wiped out what then was considered the known world. Mm. So, you know, is that the origin of the story of Noah's flood? Well, I'd argue it's a plausible one. Is it the right one? I actually don't know. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's another option, of course, which was... Um, Ryan and Pittman's idea of the flooding of the Black Sea as the the even earlier origin of the story of Noah's flood, and that just came and out in like the 1990s. That was discovered. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's just you know just a couple decades ago, and it's the um, you know it's a fairly nice example of how the idea of uniformitarianism sort of has gone not out of style. It's still very funda- foundational to geology and geomorphology. And that's the idea that things mm-hmm. happen slowly, right? Yeah, those, that, those everyday changes adding okay. up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so today we have the knowledge that both these big catastrophes and everyday changes are geologic forces. And the flooding of the Black Sea was a good example of a really big ancient catastrophe. And what, in a nutshell, what happened is that uh, during the deglaciation from the end of the last ice age, what happens when all that ice melts off the poles? Well, it ends up in the ocean, and that raises sea level. Mm-hmm. The Mediterranean was raised during the last pulse of glacial um, melting enough to spill into what was then the valley of the Black Sea, which was either 30 or 300 feet lower, depending on whose reconstruction you you view these days. But the point is that the valley of the Black Sea was a freshwater lake that got topped up to sea level by the Mediterranean spilling over its drainage divide and just basically filling it up. 
like a bathtub. Hmm. What would have happened to anybody living on the shores of an ancient of this ancient lake? And if you were in the Middle East, say seven and a half thousand years ago, you know the shores of the biggest freshwater lake in a very arid environment would be a natural place for the early agriculturalists to actually sort of set up shop. Mm-hmm. What would have happened to those people when their whole valley filled up to sea level with salt water? They would have been displaced. And anthropologists have documented a diaspora, a movement of people from that area at about the time it filled up. And what Ryan and Pittman argued was that was the origin of the story of Noah's flood. I see. And you you then had the very wonderful irony that creationists attacked Ryan and Pittman. So the scientists were, were coming up with, hey, the story of Noah's flood might actually have a historical geological basis. Right. And creationists were outraged and, you know, they called them all kinds of um, uh, horrible things on their in their media um, because they had actually, you know, maybe proven the biblical story or, or at least supported or were offering to support mm-hmm. it. A version um, of it. Be- and, mm-hmm. A version of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, offering a plausible interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what was their sin? Their sin was that it was the wrong flood. It wasn't a global flood. Right. <laughs> it was too too long ago and it was, you know, and too local and regional. Um, but but you, that idea yeah. of a local regional flood actually had deep you know, theologians uh, were proposing that in the 19th century as the way to reconcile I what see. was even then known about geology and and theology. Hmm. And 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 there is this interesting dynamic all the way through the story you tell of oh uh, well really it's about just about the human condition right I mean that 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 human beings on either side of this religious or scientific. Um, again and again take their ideas to an extreme. So there was also this interesting story of Harlan Bretz, who um, in the in the age of uni- the dominance of uniformitarian thinking um, also found evidence of giant floods in eastern Washington. And you said that, you know, he was treated as a geological heretic, <laughs> at least oh, until yeah. he was not in his 90s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Bretz, Bretz uh, made the mistake of trusting what he saw in the field. <laughs> and what he saw in the field was uh, evidence of a really big flood in eastern Washington. And he put this story together. It's a brilliant example of sort of old-school geologic sleuthing on the ground before there, you could get up in the air in airplanes to see a big picture and put it all together. And he found evidence that he could only interpret as a really big flood had shaped the landscape of eastern Washington. And Geologists didn't believe him because, you know, big floods were taboo. You couldn't you couldn't just say there was a big flood. How, you know, there must be some other more reasonable uniformitarian explanation. So he was, you know, quite literally almost drummed out of the professional geological circles. But the more he kept looking, the more evidence he found and the better the case for his really big flood became. Mm. And eventually uh, it took about 20, 30 years to put the story together, to connect his evidence for the flood scouring that he started with to a potential source of the flood. Because the big criticism was always, well, where's the source of your flood? You can't just say there was a big flood. Hmm. You know, we already fought that battle. <laughs> um, but he eventually found the source of a big flood up in, a, in the south fork of the Clark River in Montana, where a tongue of glacial ice had dammed a river. It was a lot like that Tibetan flood that um, got me off and sort of starting to write this book. Right. Um, there was a... a uh, a tongue of ice blocked a river valley. The river filled up behind the ice dam, and ice doesn't make a good dam because it floats, so it floats the dam, and it sh- flushes out 
an awful lot, you know, thousands of cubic kilometers of water in a super enormous flood. And eventually, it, it took geologists most of the 20th century to actually believe Brett's. Oh. Um, and he ended up, uh, long after he retired, uh, he ended up w- winning the, the highest award from the Geological Society of America after, you know, subsequent generations of geologists um, who hadn't been trained that he was wrong (laughs) (laughs) saw the evidence with fresh eyes and went, oh, my, you were right. This was a super enormous flood. Um, And it turns out there was actually many floods in that part of the world because the ice re-advanced and dammed the river and it happened over and over again. Hmm. But but Brett's had the wonderful uh, uh, opportunity to be vindicated in his 90s, and he, he's reported to have complained to his son that there was nobody, none of his enemies were left alive to blow over. <laughs> yeah, that would take some of that thrill away. <laughs> now, is it right that you're working on Martian topology now? Oh, uh, Martian topography. Yes. Topography. Um, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. What's the difference? No, topology is the handedness of things. The handedness. So it's like you know, right or, le- right or left handed. Oh, it's all right, the idea, all right. The two like, topologic aspects of your got hands. It. Okay. Martian topography is the surface of Mars. Okay. So, yes, uh, and, and the connection to Brett's is that one of the things that helped uh, the mainstream geologic community embrace Brett's was uh, when we started to get images of Mars and saw these, you know, photo evidence that there had been super enormous floods on Mars. Uh, all of a sudden what Brett's was suggesting for eastern Washington became the mm. way to interpret and explain these landforms on Mars. And his his work gained new value and currency. Um, and I've been looking at Martian topography uh, for a few years on sort of different aspects of it, um, trying to explain things like the origin of Valles Marineris, the great valley on Mars, and, and some smaller scale features. But it's it's one of those things where uh, NASA has done such an amazing job at getting spacecraft into orbit around this other planet and looking at it that to someone like me who who looks at the surfaces of planets, it's just this treasure trove of questions mm. and, and new kind of things to look at and ask. It's literally a whole new planet to play mm, with. Mm, mm. So another... Um passion of yours. We're not going to get to spend as much time on this as we have on floods, but uh, it is dirt. And mm-hmm. and also a connection between dirt and civilization. And of course, uh, or, you know, soil. I mean, of course, there's also that very resonant biblical connection with Adam, Adama, soil. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't know how, if you've delved into that quite as deeply. Um how does that get connected up to you f- f- with all of this? All right. Yeah, well, you look at uh, Adam and Eve is, is uh, soil and life are yeah. the two roots of the words. And that is what goes on on the world. Yeah. Um, soil is the foundation for life. So, yeah, I, uh, I've been interested in the sort of role of how people treat land, how that comes back to treat societies Literally since I was an undergraduate, I, I I bought a book out of the bargain, you know, the bargain bin at the Stanford bookstore, I think, that basically was called Topsoil and Civilization. Um, and I read it as an undergrad and was fascinated by it. It basically made the case that um, the erosion of soils had been the downfall of many ancient societies. And in my book, Dirt, was a um, essentially an updating of that argument because mm-hmm. the more we've learned and looked at sort of real rates at which erosion occurs now that we have, you know, another 50 years worth of data on the subject, it's it's one that 
paints this, the alarming picture that we're actually running out of topsoil at a time when we desperately need to figure out how the next three billion people are going to be fed that are slated to arrive later this century. And I think the, um, yeah, the one thing that's hopeful in your analysis of this is that we we can actually work with this, right? That it is that we that we do now know how to build ecological system, agricultural systems that sustain soil, and that we can actually get ahead of this crisis. We could. Yes, the good news is that it's a totally avoidable crisis, okay. in my view. Which, yeah, uh, we, we don't can... have a lot of those left. <laughs> They're mostly no. upon us. <laughs> the, the, the bad news is that the way we'd avoid those crises is called alternative agriculture. Mm. What? Sorry? The way we avoid the, it. The bad news yeah. is that, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. The bad news is that the way we could avoid it, it mm-hmm. would be to do things that we now consider alternatives right. as opposed to conventional practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we keep going uh, with con- with what's now conventional agriculture for another hundred years, uh, we will not be able to support the number of people that we have on the planet now because uh, we will be running out of fertile topsoil at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's not even engaging in the argument of what happens to soil fertility. It's actually running out of the soil. Right. Um, at present, we're losing to erosion something like a half a percent to maybe three quarters of a percent of the world's topsoil off of agricultural fields each year. Um, that's a rate that, you know, in individual years, too small to really notice or worry about. But you think about that for a century and you start going, wow, that's a lot of dirt. Right. Um, <laughs> And at a time when we really need, we're, we're faced with the need to essentially double agricultural, raise agricultural right, production right. by fifty percent or double it uh, in the next fifty years to feed the projected population. You know, we can't really afford to be losing agricultural land anymore. We need to actually turn that around and build an agricultural land and rebuild agricultural soils. And the methods that we could do to used to do that are actually pretty well known. They're just not widely practiced. Um, and those methods are things like um, no-till farming, uh, you know, not actually plowing, but planting seeds through, through the crop stubble from last year. Uh, there are methods like uh, um, trying to rebuild native soil fertility by uh, intercropping um, plants that fix nitrogen in the soil instead of using um, um, so much additional industrial produced nitrogen uh, and trying to revive the life in the soil so that the micronutrients actually get cycled back you know from the broken down from the rocks into the soil to the crops and then back what's not actually eaten by us again goes back into the soil and back into the crops sort of refreshing those kinds of cycles um, are the way we could actually avoid the repeating this the, the the problems of past civilizations you know, I, I really like um, one of the ways you frame your attention to this. Uh, you, you, you talk about there's there's kind of there's high frequency noise, the things that we tend to pay attention to, wars, climate change, you know, disease, and then there are these long wavelengths, and you you know say soil is one of those. It's there. It's fundamental. It changes over long periods of time. Yeah, if you think about sort of the whole constellation of things that could do a society in, mm-hmm. you know, we tend to go right to, you know, okay, climate change or, or wars or, um, or you know, asteroid impacts. This sort of big disasters. <laughs> it's back to that catastrophism. Things that will make headlines, <laughs> um, yes. Things that will make headlines, yes. Mm-hmm. The sort of the day-to-day chatter and noise that becomes history um, is 
how we tend to think about that. Mm -hmm. But lost in that thinking is the sort of gradual impacts of slow changes. Um, And what I learned in writing Dirt was essentially that if you go back and look at many ancient societies, not all but most in my view, um, there's these long trends of of sort of rise of civilizations when peoples have access to sort of fresh – soils and land that is very productive and so you can farm it and be and and support large numbers of people and that's sort of a recipe for a rising society and on the back side is that once soils have been exhausted or eroded off of a piece of terrain off of a landscape it becomes much more difficult to support a large population and that makes that that population more vulnerable to the high-frequency noise that could perturb the food supply, a war, a climate shift, a drought. Um, right, right. And so it's, it's my contention that you can kind of think of the way people treat land is the historical process that has loaded the gun for the termination or the, the demise, the collapse, if you will, of societies. Oh. Um, but what actually pulls the trigger is some one of those high-frequency noise events. Um, oh, but the okay. resilience of the lands, the resilience of the landscape is set by the long wavelength, uh, you know, the state of the land. And mm-hmm. we've been degrading land agriculturally for a long time now. And now that we have an integrated global society with no new, no new places to go and exploit right. in terms of soil, right. we have to learn the lesson this time and turn it around and rebuild the basic foundation for our civilization, which is fertile agricultural soil. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to start rebuilding it before we get to the point where we will inadvertently prove Malthus correct. <sighs> right. Which kind of gets back to this way you learn to see the earth as a geologist of being aware of something of geological geologic time, of deep time. Um, you know, I'm curious on a personal level walking through the world as you do with those eyes, with that attention, um, does that flow into how you think you experience ordinary time? You know, how does it shape you? Oh, boy, that's a great question. Um, the, you know, I, I'm not sure it actually does. I mean, because I'm still prone to being, to being impatient, even though I know, you know, the world has plenty of time. Right. Um, you know, I don't like standing in lines. Um, and yet you kind of look at it does give you the sort of view that, oh, well, you know, the crisis of today is, isn't really that big a crisis. What we should be worrying about are some of these really sort of long-term trends that may overtake us. I think it gives hmm. you... Not necessarily a totally different perspective, but it gives you a different lens that you can put on and view things through. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's one of those lenses that I think you almost have to be trained to use or to see because things when we think about the thing the the surface of the world changing, you know, hill slopes eroding away or mountains disappearing or rising, those aren't things you can actually see happening. You know, to to anyone who's sort of deeply rooted in, you know, if I'll I'll believe it, if I see it kind of a thinking, you know, you're never going to believe that because you can't actually see it. You have to put together the story and and piece it together. And that's where you end up with as an explanation. But it does let you start to see stories that unfold over time scales sort of longer than your own life. And so I think that um, it 
it may not give me sort of a different view of sort of the, the moment, the day-to-day momentarily passing of time, but I am certain that it gives you a different view of just sort of your place in the universe and the world, that the the vast amount of time that is has 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 happened and that will happen before before our sun eventually decides that this planet is no longer habitable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really quite humbling to, to think about the world that way. We're such a small piece of it and a small part of it that it, you could view civilization as this instantaneous blip in geological history, um, mm. whereas... You know, we don't tend to think about, you know, walking down the street in New York, you're not going to be thinking that New York is a you know, a blip and an anomaly in history. It is your full-on reality right, right. there, right then. <laughs> it's immersive, um, yes. It's completely mm-hmm. immersive, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it does give you a different way of, of thinking. And when you do think that way and you think about the sort of the, the course and fate and shaping and evolution of civilizations um, – you can kind of think of all the historical things that have been strung together that constitute the history of the world, bringing you to today when we have the very fundamental question of what do we want the future to be like? I mean, never before in our history as a species has the answer to that question, I think, been as important as it is today, because the world that all future generations are going to inherit from us depends quite literally on how we answer that question this century. Right. Um, and that, that's a, that's an when you think about the broad sweep of time and whether we're going to build a, a sustainable human society for large numbers of people or whether we're going to be sort of the latest blip that then gives way to whatever's next, yeah. that's a mighty, mighty responsibility. Yeah. You know, you're you're quite poetic. You're a poetic writer, I'd say. I mean, here, here's just a well, line you. I wrote down. Our earth, our earth is an oasis in space rendered hospitable by a thin skin of soil that once lost rebuilds only over geologic time. You know, somewhere else you write about landscape as earth's autobiography inscribed on pages of stone. Um, and then I couldn't help but notice that you also are a musician, <laughs> <laughs> like actually like a lot of scientists, which is intriguing. And I don't know if there's any direct resonance between those things for you or not. Um, I know a fair number of scientists who are musicians. Yeah. Um, and I, I think in part, I mean, it, it helps to exercise a different part of my brain. Yeah. which I think is very good. Uh, it's one of the nice things about being very passionate about something is being able to step away from it, doing something else, and then stepping back with renewed passion. Yeah. Um, and, and I view both science and music that way. If I just did one or the other, you know, that might start getting a little stale or tired of them, but I never get tired of either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in part, maybe because I, I sort of practice both on a, a daily basis. Um, so, yes, I've been playing music a long time, uh, sort of... Um, not quite as successfully as, as uh, science, but it's uh, <laughs> um, a wonderful passion as well. Hmm. Something that was pretty fascinating to me in your hist- your storytelling um, is that, you know, I think we, I, I don't know if this is a universal thing, but I, I have a sense that we have a great appreciation generally now for the ragged edges of things and for mountains and, and, and that at one time to learn that... Um, you know, the Alps were considered to be chaotic and that think what was asymmetrical didn't seem that it could be something that came of God. Um, that was just really, uh, that made me, you know, it shook me out of the way of things that seem obvious to me. 
Yeah. No, I mean, the things, it makes you sort of wonder about the things that we take granted for granted today, whether scientifically or aesthetically. Yeah. What are people 200 years from now going to look back and kind of go, oh, those silly people, what were they thinking? Right. I mean, what we call um, beautiful and majestic without questioning that um, wasn't yeah. true necessarily. Yes. No, and back in the in the days when Steno was, was writing about uh, the origin of the Tuscan landscape, um, you know, the perf- people had thought that the world was formed with a perfect shape, sort of like a sphere or like an egg, because that's what God would do. A perfect sphere was the perfect shape. Right. And so topography was viewed as the sort of the, the cluttered, broken up wreck of this original perfect creation. And we were sort of cursed to live with mountains. Um, mm. you know, most of my, as a geologist, I have a lot of grad students who are rock climbers and, and mountaineers. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and they'd be quite surprised to, to hear that the mountains were anything other than majestic natural cathedrals. Right, um, right. And yet, a couple centuries ago, they were viewed with great trepidation. You, you, you only went into the mountains um, if you were compelled to flee over them or something. Mm. It was not a place to go to, en- to enjoy their radiant beauty. Mm. I wonder if you um, feel like some of this territory you've wandered into, especially this um, looking at the interplay between religious stories and and geology as a as a field that tells stories. Um, do you feel like you're writing your books um, kind of with that world of your childhood in mind, with or with the with the religion, or you know, with not necessarily. I mean, you're with religious worlds, with this culture in mind. Um, are you, who who are you speaking to, or who would you like to speak to? Yeah, well, for um, for the rocks don't lie. The I mean, the that world of people who are wondering about the relationship between science and religion are thinking that you know how can these things really be at odds. Um, I think is a great sort of the silent middle position in the cultural landscape that's been mm-hmm. staked out today of of where you have creationists and Richard Dawkins screaming at each other from yeah. opposite sides of the, of the cultural spectrum. I think that there's an awful lot of people in the middle who, like myself, had wondered about these relationships, but don't the story of the cross-pollination and the history um, and how the one can inform the other and how it's not necessarily a stark choice, but there's actually an awful lot of intellectual room in between to think about and think rationally and and ponder theology, ponder science, that there's an awful lot of uh, history that's been lost. And Mm -hmm. that that converse, the adult part of that conversation has been lost in all the cultural screaming. And, And in a way, I think I was writing for that audience to some degree. Right, right. Um, But in in great part in writing books, I tend to go where the research and my own thinking takes me Um, and that I'm not necessarily writing for, oh, I, you know, this is my tailored to this market kind of a, a view of things. I like to run with the ideas and see where they lead me. And with The Rocks Don't Lie, that's where it led me, is to back to the idea of cross-pollination and interaction and the sort of the idea I didn't start with, which was that there's actually a fair amount of truth to many of the world's flood stories, not just the possible geologic explanations for no- the story of Noah's flood, but right. a lot of the other native flood stories from around the world seem to be rooted in geologic events that actually happened. Um, and to me, that was uh, it was exciting because yeah. that wasn't what I thought when I started writing the book. Um, this idea of and, science uh, catching up with folklore. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, the idea that some of our oldest stories 
are things that tell about the way the world worked, events that happened geologically. It's something I never really plugged into until mm. I went through doing all the research in, into this book and came away with thinking that, wow, you know, people have been concerned about what happens on the surface of the earth for an awful long time. Mm-hmm. And why? Well, because it affects us. <laughs> it, it's where we live. And, you know, a volcano blows up. And, you know, people will comment about it and note about it. And stories of that filter down through the ages. Uh, if your world, the valley you're living in, fills with water all of a sudden for no known reason, you're going to, like, tell your kids about it. or And they'll tell their kids about it. And how might you actually describe it and ascribe why it happened? Well, God is angry. He filled the valley with water. Mm-hmm. Um it, those kind of things uh, yeah. just fascinated me in getting into this. It, it's 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 kind of the version in geology of of this move towards reintegrating, kind of rehonoring subjectivity and narrative, also as belonging to intelligence and a complete picture of things. I don't know. I mean, you, I mean, you see this in physics, but you, you see it, I think, in general in medicine in a lot of fields that have science have a science base. Yeah, I think we're seeing science catch up with tra- traditional knowledge in, in a lot of areas. Right, yeah. um, and this is an example of how that's happening in geology. You know, and I didn't think that that's what I was trying to show when I went into this. It's mm-hmm. just where it led me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I think that I think that is right, um, which is, you know, it's not to say that uh, sort of folklore traditions sort of accurately describe what happened. But if you understand them in the culture and context of their times, it may be that they were a very rational attempt to, to explain things the way that people are trying to understand their universe in that time. And even today as a scientist, we could then gather evidence out of that. Right, that they preserved um, knowledge, it, it, which is valuable in the present. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But, and, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, geologists in general don't tend to view uh, folk tales of landforms that way. Right. <laughs> So I just have a, a couple more questions. Um, uh, in, in some, in somewhere in your writing, you 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 talked about there's a spectrum of ideas about God in relation uh, ideas about God in relation to the natural world. There's the helpful personal God who intervenes a lot. There's the strategic gods who, who intervenes in extraordinary circumstances. There's the distant God. There's no God at all. I wonder if you would talk about. Do you have a sense of God that? that comes out of all these things you've thought about, flows into them. Boy, um, yes, I do. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not an atheist. Um, I, but the thing I think that to humanity that to me is the sort of defining character of God is the, the mystery. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the fundamental unknowability of what is the actual sort of right view of things. Yeah. Um, there's many religions in the world. Uh, many of which claim to uh, worship the one true God, but they don't all agree on what or who that is. Um, and, you know, I think that the the sort of the awe and wonder with which you can sort of see the world, once you know its full breadth and scope in, in terms of geologic history and how brief our sort of role and place is in in it, it gives you a sort of a, a little taste of just of what does infinity actually mean? Hmm. Um, you know, for and to look at uh, a God in a way that could have created the universe, what what kind of sort of depth are you wading into and even pondering the nature of such an entity? Mm-hmm. Um, it gives you, I think, it gives me at least a lot more humility in thinking about that. Um, and, and that 
you know, colors the way that I look at, at most religions and religious texts is that, you know, there may be elements of truth in many if, uh, of them. Um, but if you're thinking about God as something much bigger than any one religion, it, it gives you a different flavor. Mm-hmm. And so if you look, think about the story of Noah and the flood now, you know, um, I, I, I think you have reflected on and also looked at how theology has looked at this, that, you know, there's there can be a question of whether it's drawing on a literal event, but there are other takeaways from that story. There are other ways to read that story and find it valuable. So, I mean, what, what's your takeaway from the story of Noah at this point in your life? Well, you know, I, I view the story of Noah now as it's, it's a really good parable. Um, you know, putting aside the question of its historical roots, um, how should we think about that story today and, and what we could learn from it, what it could still teach us? Um, and I think it still resonates quite powerfully if we look at it in terms of uh, our charge today in the world, if you will, as sort of the, the modern stewards of the planet. We're, we're the, the life form now that is, is dominating the shaping and future of the whole world and thus all other, other life forms. And if you look at sort of Noah's charge to basically save everything— don't let things go extinct. Basically, preserve the world for future generations was sort of the core of his mission. Mm-hmm. And if you view essentially righteousness or sort of our mission today in parallel terms, I think it can be a very strong lesson in terms of how we should be thinking about living in the world and treating the world and the fundamental mandate that we should have as stewards of this planet uh, for all life would be to preserve life for the future and all flavors of it. You know, we're living through a a modern extinction event that rivals geologic extinctions. And when you view the story of Noah's flood as a parable for modern the modern dilemmas that we face in terms of the environment, you come away with a, a pretty strong mandate to actually try and work pretty hard to preserve things for the future. Hmm. Um, anything that I didn't ask you about or that you, anything else you'd like to say or want to circle back to? Oh, boy. Uh, not that I can think of off the top of my head. <laughs> okay. Well, this was um, really, really interesting and fun. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure talking. Yeah, great. Um, well, we, let's see, I think, Chris, do you want to say something? Yeah, we'd, we'd love your CD. Can you send it to us? Sure. Can um, can you email me yes. where to send it, and yes. I will send you the current the yeah. current CD. The band is called Big Dirt. Okay, I would expect that. And uh, yeah, yes, <laughs> <laughs> or something with dirt in the title. Okay, that's yeah, great. Well, I'm actually in two. One one's called High Noon. One's called Big Dirt. And but Big Dirt hasn't has the new CD yet. Okay. Well, we look forward to that. Thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoyed talking. Great. I enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye.